You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For July 12, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. For decades, Europe has been the global leader in energy transition, testing various kinds of policies and incentives, with mixed results, that have subsequently informed the world on what works and what doesn't. As a result, European countries now have some of the world's most energy-efficient economies and the largest shares of renewable energy. But getting there wasn't easy, and it still isn't. From the very first efforts to develop policies that would support energy transition decades ago, right up to the present, there have been incumbents in the energy industry establishment who fought transition every step of the way, both overtly and through subversion. And although they certainly haven't stopped it, they have managed in various ways to slow transition down. Beyond merely counting the winners and losers in Europe's energy transition, however, there's another important point. And that is that while the losses have mainly been taken by a small cabal of big energy industry players, the benefits of transition have accrued to a much larger group of people who are, more often than not, everyday citizens who invested in local wind, solar, and biomass projects. As a result, energy transition has not only changed the character of energy supply in Europe, it has also had a democratizing effect and acted to redistribute wealth with many long-term effects on the political economy. It's a complex picture of a long and winding road, and it's easy to get lost in all of its details and twists and turns. But our guest today had a front row seat for much of it and has an unusually clear-eyed view of how it happened and what it all means, all of which he has detailed in a new book. Claude Termas has been a member of the Greens for Luxembourg in the European Parliament for over 15 years, and he is now its top energy specialist. And long before that, he was an energy transition activist, installing solar thermal systems and dreaming of changing the world. He has a long memory of the various things that have been tried in Europe's energy transition, including why various efforts succeeded and failed, and it's a great privilege to have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about France's response to Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, one way that American cities are dealing with rising flood levels due to climate change a possible indication of the end of any hopes for clean coal, and a very cool new electric city bus. But first, our conversation with Claude Termas. Let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Claude, to the Energy Transition Show. Welcome from Europe, yes. Hi. Thank you. So your new book, Energy Transformation, An Opportunity for Europe, opens with a scene from 2008 in which the European Parliament approved the renewable energy directive you had worked long and hard to put into effect as a member of Parliament. And that directive, if I understand it correctly, set goals to achieve 35% of electricity and 20% of all final energy consumption across Europe by 2020. But each country would set its own national targets toward those goals. And actually, that sounds fairly similar to the structure of the Paris Accord. So what did the Renewable Energy Directive achieve, and do you think that example can tell us anything about the prospects for the Paris Accord? 
So this directive was, this renewable legislation at EU level was really, really instrumental. We see in the statistics that, so this legislation, we did it in 2008 and 2009, 10, 11, 12 boom years in European renewables for solar and for wind. And uh, this boom is continuing. So having legislation which gives mandatory obligations to every member state. So it was us from Brussels to say, Romania, you have to do X percent. France, you have to do X percent. So the governments, in a certain sense, have no choice but to invest into renewables. Okay. And that was really, really important because what you need, you need, so it's not governments, it's not public money who invests in wind or solar, it's private money. So you need to get investor certainty. And the more stringent framework, the lower the risk for the investor and the lower the risk for the bank who lends money to an investor. So the lower the overall cost because renewables is capital intensive. Wind and the solar doesn't make any oil. So all the capital costs are in the moment when you raise it. And so the more binding you are in policy, the lower you will have to pay for capital. Right. And that is what gives you then the cheapest renewables. Okay. The Renewable Energy Directive then allowed renewables to be built at a lower cost of capital. But what did it achieve in terms of actually building the renewable energy capacity? So Germany alone has done since then 40 gigawatt of solar. Spain did solar. UK did a lot on offshore wind. So Denmark continued. Sweden did a lot on onshore wind. And very importantly, before that legislation, Eastern Europe was almost nowhere on renewables. And now we have, for example, the three Baltic states very big in biomass. They have a lot of forests. And we have, for example, Romania is very big in wind. Romania has, with Scotland, probably the best onshore wind resource and the biggest wind onshore turbines project standing in Romania, 700 megawatt in a row, which is big for Europe because we are more densely populated than U.S. Right. Wow, I didn't know that about Romania. So the EU's Renewable Energy Directive of 2009 created an opportunity for millions of citizens and small businesses across Europe to invest in wind and solar projects, either individually or cooperatively. And a key part of your story in the book is about the so-called Magritte Group, which consisted of eight leading European energy industry bosses who gathered in Brussels in 2013 at a museum dedicated to the famous Belgian surrealist artist René Magritte. And that group included the CEOs of GDF Suez, now Engie, a large French energy company, the German utilities RWE and E.ON, the Spanish firms Iberdrola and Gas Natural Fenosa, the Italian companies ENI and ENEL, and Gasterra from the Netherlands. And you allege that these companies were losing significant market share as a result of the Renewable Energy Directive, and that they worked together to stall the development of renewable energy, to get rid of renewable energy subsidies, to create capacity markets to protect their legacy conventional power stations. That's quite an allegation. I mean, was this truly a conspiracy to stymie energy transition, or was it merely the independent actions of those who stand to lose from it, those who had legacy power plants they wanted to keep operating, just acting in their own self-interest. We have, with the renewable energy legislation, which we are talking about, plus other legislations in the field of energy efficiency, we have completely changed the business model of electricity in Europe. So the 
energy oligopolies, which gathered in this Margaret group, they earn money in the system built on old assets, coal, nuclear, and a bit of gas. And so what we have done is we have very powerful energy efficiency legislation, a bit like California has. We have near zero energy new buildings. We have eco design and labeling for every refrigerator, TV, and so on. We have CO2 and cast legislation. So in overall, oil consumption is going down in Europe. Gas consumption is going down in Europe. And what is even more surprisingly, electricity consumption is stable or going down in Europe. So you can imagine you are in a market which is stable, which is not growing anymore. And then in that market, we go from 15% of green electricity, renewables, wind and solar to 35 and these growth of 20% in a frozen, not growing market, not coming from the energy oligopolies, but coming from citizens, because we had an easy to invest in system based on feed-in tariffs. And that has completely exploded in a certain sense, the existing business model. And therefore, it's not so surprising that all the old guys were really they were really stressed by all these legislations which they were not able to prevent and then they gathered to create a new lobby group and the message from this lobby group is really slow down with renewables slow down with energy efficiency keep the old coal and gas in the system because we want to earn money and they were this lobby this margaret group was extremely skillful in the sense they had a very good lobby strategy. So they went to every prime minister in a combination of, for example, when they went to the, the Rajoy, so the Spanish prime minister, they took the Spanish companies plus one or two guys from the European, so from other European countries. When they went to the French, they took the French branches. So the, these CEOs of these big power companies, they have, of course, the telephone number of the prime minister. The, they are good friends with the energy minister. And that has led to a very successful lobby by them to a very bad decision at the level of EU heads of state in October 2014. So it took them one and a half year in a certain sense to almost destroy our success story of 2008 and 2009. So this Magritte group, this is an identifiable group of people with a very public position on energy policy. Yes, they are uh, Mestralé, who is a, the boss of this troop, uh, reactionary guys from yesterday. He has produced a video where he's explaining the strategy by saying, and tomorrow we go to Hollande and uh, next we go to Spain and the week after we go there. So. All this is on record and the book is out. I'm still not in jail. So, and, and, uh, <laughs> so which means that they have no ammunition to say that I'm not right about what I'm writing. Wow. Well, let's hope that you remain free. So you discuss in the book how the Hinkley Point C nuclear plant in Britain managed to get approved with a guaranteed subsidized power purchase agreement of £92.50 per megawatt hour, which is double the current wholesale price of power, and it's actually indexed to inflation for 35 years. And you point out that the commission backed this massive 24 billion euro project at the same time that it cut support for renewable technologies, which was an obviously hypocritical stance not only against fair market principles, but against their own stated policy in order to benefit EDF, the French company behind the Hinkley Point C project. So how did this happen? It happened because of massive, massive, massive political interference from Cameron, the then Prime Minister of UK, 
and the whole French power establishment and, of course, the French government. And it's complete hypocrisy. So in the very same moment where we had this pressure from the Margaret group to say, look, no support anymore for renewables, renewables getting every day cheaper. So pressure from EU Commission not to allow any more wind for 80 or 75 euro per megawatt hour, they allow a nuclear power plant for 110 euro per megawatt hour, which is roughly the translation of uh, the pounds you announced. And it is completely going against the line of commissions that we have a fair internal market in which we have no support or only support to renewables. And so it's a complete distortion. Why was it possible to get this through is because Cameron at that time, remember we were before Brexit referendum. So we were in a period where each time Cameron wanted something, he came to Brussels to say, if I don't get Hinckley, I will call a referendum and we risk to go out. And that was a bit the way where basically he's got commission to accept it. And then, in a certain sense, commission is hiding behind a dinosaur part of our European treaty, which is Euratom, which is from, from the, the 50s. It has a brilliant article one where basically people in Europe will be happier if we have a lot of nuclear energy. So it's worth reading it. So legally, the legal construct was to use this old treaty to say, in a certain sense, nuclear is outside the competitive uh, European internal market, which is absurd. But politically, it is what Cameron and then the French together got. And uh, the Germans, because they didn't want, in a certain sense, to go against these two neighboring countries, basically allowed them to do it. Wow. So you're basically saying that Cameron held Britain's membership in the EU hostage to this Hinkley Point C project. Yes. Wow. Okay. So do you believe that nuclear power should actually be one of the solutions we seek during the energy transition since it can generate carbon-free power? I think 10 years ago, we always said, look, too risky. So what is if it blows up and then Fukushima gave us, unfortunately, uh, right? Right. Today, I think the Greens have been joined probably by each and every banker of the world. And I would say 85% of all CEOs of all energy companies in the world. And in US, you see the companies who, like Westinghouse, were still in this ideology of nuclear when bust. Areva, which was in the same ideology in France, is bust. And the power companies which have embarked on it, like ADF, so-called third-generation nuclear power plants, they are in a financial limbo. So be aware that the two nuclear reactors which are in the build, one is in Finland and one in Neukölleto and one is in France. So they started, they were on paper advocated with contracts of $3 billion and they will turn out 10 billion plus. So gigantic losses, which have already yeah, made- Over budget and over schedule as yeah, usual. Yeah, and so, and in the same moment, so go back to 2008, at that time, we had the promise that a nuclear reactor would be 3 billion. It turned out 10 plus. At that time, solar was still at probably 150 euro per megawatt hour. Now it's in Europe around bigger installations around 50, 55, maybe in Spain and Portugal, maybe even at 40, 45. So we have seen fantastic development on cost cuts of renewables. So today, 
a large scale solar is two to three times cheaper than a new nuclear reactor. Onshore right. wind is two times cheaper. And the very beautiful story of the last two years is offshore wind in Europe is now also twice cheaper, two times cheaper than new nuclear. And offshore wind, that's 5,000 hours steady production over the year. So also these arguments that solar would only be 12 or 1,500 hours compared to seven, 8,000 hours of nuclear with offshore wind, that doesn't fly anymore. So I think that beyond those who have always been anti-nuclear, we have now, I think all those who would have to invest into nuclear will say, this is a damn bad investment <laughs> decision. So we will definitely not do it. And yet, nuclear continues to enjoy strong political support. Yes, so that's a we bit. We continue uh, to give it subsidies and government support. I mean, why is yeah, this? Yeah, because sometimes I think it's about you have a generation which has to die out. I would put it. You know, like that's so. exactly what Jeremy <laughs> Leggett said. Jeremy yes, Leggett from the yeah. UK said exactly yeah. that. He said it's uh, men of a certain age that just are yeah. still in power. Yeah. So it's okay. uh, it's a bit of don't forget that. These people who are so 60, 70, a old today, sometimes on the far right, but also on the, for example, in France, the Communist Party was the most radioactive of all. So these people have grown up with this idea, nuclear is the future, endless energy, cheap. They forgot about that the track record is basically completely different, but they don't want to look at the track record. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In the wake of Trump's announcement that he will withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord, French President Emmanuel Macron has reached out to Germany with a proposal to establish a common price floor for the emissions allowances traded in the EU's emissions trading system at 30 euro or $33.55 U.S. per ton, about six times the current European price. France made a similar proposal to Germany last year, which failed, and since German Chancellor Angela Merkel faces re-election in September, it may be hard to convince Germany this time around as well. The French and German leaders plan to hold a joint cabinet meeting over the summer. If the two parties were able to agree on the plan, countries such as Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg would likely join in. Item 2. According to an expert at the American Planning Association, hundreds or possibly thousands of bridge-raising projects have been completed recently or are planned in response to rising flood levels across the United States. The Federal Emergency Management Agency says it's now routinely providing money. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. 
You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.